So this morning, uh, we're continuing on our journey uh, in the book of Genesis. And Genesis is a book uh, that establishes the fundamental truths about God. Uh, among these truths are his role as creator, uh, his holiness, his hatred for sin, his love for mankind, and his willingness uh, to provide for our redemption. We learned in Genesis not only where man came from, but where the world is in its present form today. Genesis also presents uh, the establishment of Israel, God's chosen people. Uh, we start to see many of the spiritual principles uh, given in other parts of Scripture dependent on the basic ideas presented here in Genesis. Now, within the framework of the Bible, uh, Genesis explains the bare-bones history, uh, if you will, of the universe leading up to uh, the captivity of Israel in Egypt, setting the stage for the book of Exodus. Now, for the sake of continuity, I'd like to do a quick review of chapter 43 uh, before we launch into chapter 44. The previous chapter ended with Jacob's uh, insistence that he would not allow his beloved son Benjamin to be taken to Egypt uh, with his brothers. He was willing to leave Simeon in prison there rather than risking Benjamin come to harm. Now this continues to be a pattern uh, of outrageous favoritism uh, that started with Jacob's own parents and continued into his own life. Now some time has passed Uh, since the ten oldest sons came back with grain and the money that they thought they had paid for it. The famine rages on and the family's food stores are getting dangerously low once more. Now Jacob finally tells his sons to go buy some more food from Egypt. And in speaking on behalf of his brothers, Judah must remind their father that they cannot buy food in Egypt if they do not return with Benjamin. After all, the Egyptian ruler insisted on this. Now, taking a bold stand, Judah flatly refuses to go uh, if Benjamin does not come. Jacob responds by lashing out, blaming his sons for even mentioning Benjamin to the Egyptian governor. Now, it's not clear how much time has passed, but it's long enough for matters to go from bad to worse. The uh, the, The family is on the verge of starvation. And pressing the issue, Judah sways his father in two ways. First, he points out that the family, including uh, the little ones and Benjamin, will all die without food from Egypt. And second, Judah offers his own life as a pledge of safety for Benjamin, making the commitment to be responsible if anything should happen uh, to his youngest brother. Jacob can't let everyone die including his youngest son, or, or, he can send, or he could do that, or he could send the entire group to see if they can obtain food. Finally, we see that Jacob agrees. Uh, he orders his son to take a gift to the Egyptian ruler, along with double the amount of the money uh, to cover the cost of both the last purchase of grain and the new one. Now, soon Jacob's sons find themselves bowing before the Egyptian uh, ruler once more, this time with Benjamin at their side. They still do not realize that this powerful man is their estranged brother Joseph, who they had sold into slavery. And in spite of their fears, uh, the house steward assures the brothers that it was God who put the money in their packs. So when Joseph arrives, the brothers present him with their gifts from Canaan, and Joseph takes special interest in Benjamin, 
offering a blessing for him. Uh, overwhelmed with emotion, uh, we, we, we read that Joseph must leave to go to his own room and cry before returning to them. The first test of Joseph, of his brothers, uh, is a test of their jealousy, I, I think, by giving Benjamin five times the portion given to the others. Now, the understanding at this time is that all 11 brothers will be sent back to Canaan with full sacks of grain. Things are going to be better for, and think, I think things, they think things are going better for them than they thought it ever would, right? Uh, but Joseph has one last test in mind, and we're going to see uh, in chapter 44, right? So we're going to pray, but have you ever prayed Scripture? I love praying Scripture. Number one, you can't go wrong, right? It's God's words. And, uh, and it just... For me, it, it, it's always been just uh, something I just always love to do. So let's pray together. We're going to pray uh, Isaiah 61 together. Okay? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them acknowledge, I'll acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My, my soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And its garden causes what is uh, sown in to sprout up. So the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you would please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Genesis 44. And this morning, <clears throat> I want to discuss uh, several specific themes. Uh, the first is Judah 
uh, becoming a man of God. There are things he did that we can model as Christians today. Uh, things regarding the acknowledgement of sin, confession of sin, and repentance of sin. In the final episode of Joseph's testing of his brothers, Joseph framed Benjamin for an imaginary crime and claimed Benjamin as a slave and recompense. So let's read uh, uh, 44 here together. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you uh, from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be uh, my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I shall uh, do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said, go to your servants, and let, uh, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. 
If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to shell. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shale. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Everybody follow that? So when Joseph, when, when Joseph demanded to the brothers uh, return home to Isaac without Benjamin, uh, we see there in verse 17 that Judah emerged as the group's spokesperson. But what gave Judah the standing to take on this role? He had broken his faith with his family by marrying a Canaanite. We see that in Genesis 38 too. He had raised such wicked sons that the Lord put two of them to death. We see that in Genesis 38, 7 and 10. He had treated his daughter-in-law as a prostitute. We see that in Genesis 38, 24. And he had hatched the plan to sell his own brother as a slave. We see that in Genesis 37, 27. So we gave him standing. But the story Judah told Joseph showed a changed man, I think, I believe. He exhibited unexpected compassion in telling of the family's heart-wrenching experience of starvation, of his father's undying love for Benjamin, and of Judah's own promise to his father that he would bring Benjamin back home, lest Jacob literally die from grief. Then in an ultimate expression of compassion, Judah offered to substitute himself in place of Benjamin. He proposed that he be retained in Egypt for the rest of his life as the governor's slave, if only the governor would let Benjamin go home to his father. Now, Judah could not have done this unless he was enabled by God. He couldn't have changed on his own uh, to this extent unless changed by God. But I, I wonder how many times we have written people off because of their sinful lifestyle, because of their rejecting Jesus. Maybe they're inflicting great pain <clears throat> on us in the past. We don't see in them the possibility of becoming believers. So we judge them as if we were God ourselves. In 
And this brings me to a second point here. In our inability to forgive others, we've fallen into this trap of becoming religious. Now you might ask, so what's, what's wrong with being religious? Are Christians religious? If you would, please turn with me to James chapter 1. And we're going to start with verses 19. We're going to go 19 to 27. James 1, 19 to 27. <clears throat> and it reads, Know this, my beloved, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rapid wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it seems there's two kinds of religion here. But when do we become religious in a worldly way? Well, we, it begins when we start to compromise the Word of God. That's where it starts. And let's use two different words here. Let's, the first is religion, and the second word is the gospel. Religion tells us what we can't do. The gospel tells us what we can do. Philippians 4.13 proclaims that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul wrote these words while facing some of the worst trials of his life. And despite the threat of pain and death, he realized that God gives us strength in ways that go beyond the good times and the everything is okay moments. The strength of Christ reaches down into our turmoil and into our pain. And he does this in three ways. First, he does it through trials. And Leonard's going to really pick up on this uh, in his sermon, so I'm not going to hit this too hard. <laughs> when we think of victory... We often envision champions with trophies and medals. 
Maybe of being in the spotlight before many witnesses or parades and celebrations. But true victory often happens far away from the crowd. It happens in our private prayer times. Or in the reminders from the Holy Spirit as he brings comforting scripture to mind. In Christ, we will certainly see joyful times. A lot of people see joyful times. But what truly sets the Christian apart is that as followers of, Christ, of Jesus, we find victory in the most difficult trials. James knew this. He knew this kind of struggle, yet he could say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Second, we have contentment. We have the strength of Christ through contentment. If there's ever a fight that goes on in, uh, in humans, it's the constant struggle to be content, to be happy. Disappointments, setbacks, and delays, and they just keep hammering away at us. And apart from Christ, we'd quickly trip and stumble uh, our, our way into bitterness and entitlement. After all, after all what, what does the world tell us? It tells us that we deserve to be happy, right? How many times have you heard that? You, you know, you deserve to be happy. <laughs> but this is not the mindset of a believer. In Christ, we move our eyes off the things that we don't have, the frustrations that surround us, and we put them where they need to be. And again, Scripture says it best uh, when we read uh, uh, in Philippians 4.13 right? I can do everything in Christ who strengthens me but let's look at the verses prior to verse 13 there it says not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and need. And will you say it all together with me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So how can we have this type of contentment? What did Joseph know in his circumstances? Right? He turned his attention to the only thing that matters, God. By turning our attention from what we think we need to the only thing that truly matters, we can have true contentment. Now in Matthew uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 32 and 33, you don't need to turn there, but I'll, I'll just read it. Jesus said this, For the Gentiles seek after all the things your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Praise God. 
Our contentment is in what we have or don't have here on earth. Our hope and our contentment is in Christ. Very simple. Third, Christ strengthens us through his victory. Our greatest victory isn't ours at all. We can face any situation and be content no matter what the outcome because of one important fact. The Bible tells us right here, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Let me read that again. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died in our place and came back as a true conqueror. And all he accomplished gets credited to our account. We didn't earn a single bit of this. This is called unmerited grace, unmerited favor. But we are promised so much. He won the victory, and we get to share the prize. Hallelujah. So again, religion tells us what we can't do, but the gospel tells us what we can Religion is rules without reason. Religion is systems without substance. Religion is belief without the Bible. And when we become religious instead of spirit-led, we lose sight of what God has granted us. When we become religious, We pursue our own agendas. We reject the idea of trials to grow. Why do I have to go through something hard to grow? Right? Isn't there an easier way? Or of the need to crucify the flesh. Ouch. Or of the need to surrender. When we become religious, we, we practice unbelief, which is sin. We practice self-pity. We blame God and others for, for our lack of faith. Isn't that rich? We put ourselves above God and embrace our own miserable false wisdom. In short, we become, Grady introduced me to this term, I never heard it before, we become me monsters. <laughs> That's what the me monster, I thought it was like from a kid's show or something. You know. Then when he explained it, I said, oh, I get it. Right? Now one of the marks of a me monster is that we forgot what it says in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And we're going to read it in just a second, but, but, but this is so amazing. Last week, I went to go do, uh, serve communion in the back with the cove. And I always have like a, 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 a passage from scripture to share uh, with the folks back there, uh, you know, before we take communion. And I, I don't know what happened, but I didn't, I, I wasn't prepared. So I went back there with nothing on my mind except just to, you know, uh, uh, serve the communion. 
And I realized at the last second, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't prepare a passage and, and pray over it or anything, right? And so I just, I just had my Bible there, the one the dog ate. And I, and, and I went to uh, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And I come back here, and Grady starts preaching, and what's in his sermon? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And then what he's using communion? Romans 5, chapter 1 through 11. Right? And I went up to Grady afterwards. I go, isn't God amazing? You know, I guess people on the same page won't even know, won't even know it. Right? So let's go there. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And scripture reads Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we, also, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I was talking to guys last night. I, I, lately, I've, I've been, and the guys on Monday night also, I, I've been, I, I read scripture, and one word just jumps out. And I just get zeroed in and focus in on, on, the, on these one-word experiences that, that I have uh, going through Scripture. And the word that jumped out here was the word justified. This tells us we have been justified. This means that we have been declared to be right before God by virtue of the blood of Christ. His blood was poured out in his death on the cross for us. Really, we have been declared not guilty of sin. Justification. We've been justified. But hear me on this. The fact that we are justified does not give us the right to justify. But isn't that what we do when confronted with our continuing in sin? When we refuse to walk in obedience to God? and instead get in lockstep with the world? Yes, we are justified, but we are not to justify. 
We cannot justify or give excuses for our lack of faith. We cannot justify our disobedience to God and His Holy Word. We cannot justify our failure to pray without ceasing. Think about what our Father must feel when we refuse to talk to Him on a daily basis. Does anyone here think that God cannot be grieved? Would anybody imagine that? Entire sermons have been preached and books have been written on prayer. But let me just ask you some simple questions. What would be the result if you refused to speak to your husband or your wife or your children daily? What if you just I'm not talking to them anymore. Imagine going for days on end, not saying a word to them. How would they feel? Would they have a sense of the love you proclaim for them? Towards them? Or imagine what the church would be like if we never spoke to one another. Instead of being united in Christ, we would be left to thinking only of ourselves, selfish me monsters. And lack of prayer, ironically, is communicating, is communicating to God that you do not care to speak to him. To engage with him, to cast your burdens on him, to tell him how much you love him and adore him and trust him. Our sinful lack of prayer to our Father is a direct result of our unbelief that we justify somehow with lies springing from our hearts. We replace relationship for which we were created with religion. We cannot justify our redefining of sin to fit the life uh, we are choosing to lead or the decisions we are making. Instead of calling sin disobedience, we refer to sin as a disease, something that we can't help. By this definition, we don't need a savior. We just need a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Or self-help books is all we need, if that's your definition. We use softer words or ideas about sin to justify sins in our lives. All of a sudden, what the Bible calls adultery, we call indiscretion or extramarital affair, like it's extra good somehow. Our outward fits of anger. Anybody have an anger problem? We justify that because we define it as a response to whatever it was that angered us. I'm, I'm, I'm just mad because of what happened to me. 
You don't get that? And when we confess the sin of anger, we don't have repentance in mind, but instead, we're just unhappy that someone heard us get mad, another brother or sister, right? That's all, that's all we're upset about. Not about breaking God's heart. We cannot justify our failure to be in the Word of God daily. Yet I personally know people, believers, who rarely, if ever, pick up their Bibles. And they even tell me what, what they read instead. They're supposedly just as good. Maybe a book someone wrote about the Bible. Maybe a devotion someone wrote about the Bible. Whatever. But it's not God's Word. It's just someone's version of what they think it says. You want to know what God says? Read His Word. A justifier will go to great lengths to hang on to the past. Now, I really want, to, want you to zero in with me on this. They wear trials and tough circumstances as a sort of badge of honor. They, they never seem to have victory. And, and, and often they, they, they display this victim, I'm a victim mentality. Poor me. You don't know what I've been through, Gabe. That's why I act like this. And when we attempt to counsel them, they say things like, well, you quote the Bible to me, but, you know, we got to live in the real world, brother. You talking about the, the real sinful world that doesn't have God's wisdom? Is that the world you're talking about? You're talking about the world where Christ is rejected? You're talking about the world where God's word doesn't matter? Is that, the, is that the world you're talking about when you say that? That's the real world? That's not a believer's real world. We are in Christ. That's our reality. Or they say, don't, don't, you quote scripture to them and say, oh, please don't hit me with those platitudes. Platitudes? I, I just share with you from God's holy word and you're calling it a platitude? They consider our prayers like pie in the sky. It might happen, might not. The person who justifies their sinful behavior as a result of their past, you can see them. They're the ones that are dour and downcast all the time. They never have anything positive to say. You can ask them, how's your day going? Oh, yeah, man. You know, wish I hadn't got up today. You can see it. 
You see it in their outward demeanor. They, 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 and, and they seldom, if ever, display any joy in the Lord. They will seek every other source of comfort, which usually is something that allows them to embrace lack of faith rather than the Word of God. Now, I'm describing someone who the Bible refers to as someone who is grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit. Finally, a justifier is filled with fear. They believe that God punishes believers instead of understanding that he disciplines us out of love for us. But because they are legalistic, they, they fail to understand that Christ bore our punishment on the cross. These people are shackled by the chains of religion and they insist that their husbands and their wives and their children and everybody around them be burdened with the same stuff as well. And you know why? Because misery loves company. They are not long-suffering, but they long for suffering. Now, I'm not saying these things today to be unloving. Uh, I'm not trying to discourage anyone here today. Rather, I'm pointing out that our victory has already been achieved in Christ. That when we draw near to God through prayerful obedience to his word, we will be freed from the chains of religion and set free to grow in maturity in Christ. That's real liberty. The things of the past, the tough circumstances, the illnesses, the abuse, the abandonment, whatever has happened to you, They were never meant to be a refuge to run to. You cannot go back to these bad things that, that you've been through and, and seek comfort there or refuge there. It's not gonna, you're not going to find it. It's just going to imprison you. It's, it's going to bring you even more down. It's going to make you religious. It's going to make you a justifier. It's going to make you a me monster. Our trials, our tribulations, the tough things, they were never meant to be the reason for unbelief or the reason for sinful behavior. Rather, they should become testimonies to the glory of God. They are to be surrendered to God in faith, and he will take up all our burdens and set us free to worship him and love him. We need to replace the fear that legalism and religion produce with the fear of God. 
Did you know that when you fear God, you fear nothing else? When you fear God, you fear nothing else. We cannot fear how God is going to use us or the circumstance he's going to bring us. He is always going to achieve his purpose for his glory. It's always going to turn out just right according to his purposes. And I think that the circumstances were not actually, we talk, I, I asked this question last night with, with the group of guys. Are, are, are the trials or the circumstances we go through, were they, were they meant to grow us personally or corporately? And everybody said, yes. <laughs> I think that meant both, right? But I think that Sometimes it's not meant for us personally, but rather the circumstances were designed to make us useful in his divine will. His sovereign plan. And all the while teaching us to understand what is happening in the lives of others. See, with God, everything is always relational. We need to surrender to God's will. This requires abandonment of what? Our wills. Of our plans. Of our wisdom. Crucifying the flesh and living out our faith that, by the way, God has granted us in his loving mercy and grace. That's, that's what I love about my faith in God. Is that he gave it to me as a gift. I didn't have to work it up. I didn't have to figure it out. He gave me faith to believe when he saved me. And I know for a fact that the gift giver does not take gifts back. Everything God does is permanent. His promises are true and real. Let me conclude with uh, Romans chapter 6. If you turn with me there. I'm going to start in verse 5. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, true surrender is a matter of 
being united with Christ in a death like his and united with him in a resurrection like his. When this happens, we will grow in maturity to the point where nothing will appeal to us that does not appeal to God. We will live a life that is a beautiful, unbroken relationship with Jesus. A life of victory and of service to God and and all this to his glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for tearing down the veil that kept us from you. Thank you for your undeserved grace, for your loving mercy, and for the loving discipline and trials you bring our way. Thank you for uniting us in the death and resurrection of your Son. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to enable us, to comfort us, and to guide us in your ways. Thank you for freeing us from the chains of sin and death, doing your will. Thank you, Father, for freeing us from man-made religion and into a true relationship with you. Thank you for granting us saving faith as we strive now not to own our own agendas, but for your honor and glory. And we pray this today in, in the wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.